in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my Rye co host, Patrick Pister. Hey, yo, Mark, how you doing? We're having a good day, aren't we? We are. Good, good lunch, good Great day, lunch. good weather. Yep. And we have a guest, as usual. Yeah, I'm going to be quiet on this one. We've got a lawyer in the room. We've got uh, <laughs> uh, Sarah Stogner, uh, who we found on LinkedIn because she had an awesome article about uh, legal and insurance, and we just had to get her on. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Glad Thanks, to be here. So it's funny. At lunch, we're talking about a whole bunch of things, one of which is you uh, lived in New Orleans for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. What a great city to live in. The weather there, other than the middle of summer, is beautiful. You're right there on the lake. Any type of food you want is there. It has a reputation for, I think, a bit of a party city, maybe? Yeah, but uh, only the tourists go to Bourbon Street. So. Well, only tour- <laughs> that's exactly right. Only tourists go to Bourbon Street. And so one of the things that was, we were so excited, which, by the way, Sarah, you're, you did more on social media before coming on the show than any of our guests ever. Well, that's a pretty low bar, then. <laughs> <laughs> you just seem so excited about it. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to have you here. So, you know, one of the things that we want to talk about is is in the HSE world, in oil and gas, there's a lot of stuff that people don't think of. When you think of stuff like legalese and contracts, you know, think of things like insurance. Uh, when you identify stuff, I'm sorry, in, say it, I can't. Inde- indemnity. Indemnity, yeah. <laughs> this is a lot of stuff that is really important in our industry. And if you make bad decisions, the consequences can be enormous. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk. I think you're wrong, Mark. People think about it after the fact when they're dealing with a legal or insurance issue that that's when they think about it. But as we talked about earlier, there's a lot you need to do on the upfront to make sure you're covered for any eventuality. Right. Yeah. So when you think about it that way, if you think about the mistakes that you've seen companies make uh, in the oil and gas industry when they don't do their due diligence up front, what does that look like? Is there some commonalities there? Right. So I think the big thing is that There are so many different contracts and so many different parties in a common everyday operations, right? So you've got your upstream producers, you've got service contractors, you've got subcontractors, you've got employees, you have master service agreements that the purpose is to say, okay, big picture, here's the terms and conditions that are going to govern our relationship. And making sure that those terms and conditions are then carried through to the subs, to their subs, and that the obligations that you assume within the contract that you actually have the right insurance to cover those liabilities that you've either have inherently in your own operations as a company or that you have contractually assumed within a, a contractual relationship with another party. Yeah. And so when you think about contracts, you know, contracts can be extremely basic or in the case of some of the really large companies, unbelievably complex. And I mean, even in our case, when we get in over our head with contracts, I bring in legal help. Because that that help up front keeps me from making mistakes, and those mistakes could, could could be catastrophic if it's not handled right up front. So, can we kind of talk about that? What is what is some of the things that you see that people could probably work on better from a contractual point of view? Okay, so I think the big picture is to have right off the bat educate within your organization and tell people like, hey, guys in the field, for example, a field ticket. Right? If you don't have a master service agreement. 
ahead of time that sets forth those terms and conditions. And you've got a guy in the field that gets a field ticket delivered or a work order delivered. There's going to be terms and conditions on the back of that field ticket that he's then going to sign and the company's then going to be bound. So it's educating your workforce. It's educating your guys in the field to understand that think before they sign kind of thing and to get counsel involved on the front end to come in and review your contracts, review your insurance, meet with your broker, meet with your risk manager, meet with your HSE guy, right? Meet with each of the departments to understand their role, the contracts that they're going to be signing and how that all fits into the big picture of how we're going to allocate risk. Yeah. It's, you know, this brings up a good point. So that is all absolutely great stuff from a legal point of view, but from a business point of view, when you, when you run an MSA, right, when it's clean, when both parties know what they're obliged to, what they're not obliged to, it actually makes the business run better because everything's out and open. Things like management of change, that process should be in your MSA. Don't you agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that everybody understands the process of a change order because change orders can make or break a job in this industry. Right. So how has the industry changed? I, I had a lot of mentors and bosses that would talk about that it used to be done on a handshake. And I would say that isn't true anymore. Even if you start the negotiation with a handshake, you still have to follow it up with paperwork. Is that really that different? Were all these contracts being done and people just assume that they weren't? Huh. <laughs> <Her face. laughs> I think you still have on a lot of times, maybe a a contract that was out there that may never have been looked at again because the culture was different in that when something bad happened, you had two guys that were friends or that had a relationship, they had their reputation, and they would all try to work together to try to fix whatever had happened. And I think nowadays in modern society, because we're such a global community, right, of you're doing business with people that you may never have met. And so it's a whole lot easier to look back on a piece of paper to try to be right when you don't have to go to lunch with a guy or your kids aren't playing soccer together, right? So I think there's always been contracts. There's always been insurance. There's always been these issues. It's just as we get more sophisticated and maybe less friendly on a personal level, you're going back and actually looking at what the contracts say. Well, I think more professional, less friendly sounds okay. so so cold, <laughs> but you, yeah, you want to have it documented what whatever you've actually agreed to, and our memories are are fallible. So having it in writing is a good thing. But I think people are still trying to do the right thing, but having that level of protection on both sides is a is a good thing. And I don't see the industry going away from it anytime soon, especially with all the incidents that have been happening out there. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's imperative that it be done but it'd be done properly, right? I mean, the only thing worse than not having a contract is having a contract that you don't know what it says or you don't follow what's required. So Yeah, I, um, I'm not going to say the name of the company. I actually have a client that agreed to sign the SOW because it made sense, but they didn't want to sign the MSA. And it's like the MSA protects you. The SOW is just explaining what we're working on. And so you literally have big businesses out there that don't understand the intent of the different pieces of the contract. You do, but you also have big companies that refuse to sign MSAs because they're going to put whatever they want on the back of that field ticket and it's going to get signed. I right. mean, I see it pretty frequently. What happens in that situation? What happens when somebody wants to adjust the contract language on a field ticket and that company also has an existing MSA? Right. So in a properly drafted MSA, it will say 
that this MSA governs our relationship and to the extent that there's any conflict between this MSA and any other agreement, work order, field ticket, whatever it is, this MSA trumps unless signed by both parties. And I actually require uh, that the MSA be identified by date because I have seen people that think that they're clever and on the back of a field ticket will say the parties expressly agree and acknowledge that this field ticket supersedes whatever was written in the MSA just a standard language trying to go through. So I require that it identify the MSA by date. Yeah. And if people don't, if people already don't know what an MSA is, what does it stand for and what is it? Oh, I'm sorry. So it's a master service agreement is what it stands for. And it is the contract that says one company is hiring another company and they're going to have an ongoing relationship. And it doesn't obligate either party to do the work or to order the work. It just says if and when we decide to do work, these are the terms and conditions that will govern our relationship. And so in in a typical MSA, you'll see payment terms, indemnities, insurance requirements, who's going to pay the taxes, the basics of how's this relationship going to look. Yeah. And then from a business point of view, nice thing about an MSA, nothing against attorneys, but you negotiate the MSA once typically. And then after that, you're free to do business together, typically on something that references back that MSA because you've agreed upon all the big legalese. Yes, exactly. So it makes it just easier to do future work together. So now that we've defined what an MSA and what the, the contractual terms are, tell us how you go by protecting yourself. What's more important? Do you need your insurance coverage to cover every eventuality of your vendor or your client having something happen? Or can that language be written into the contract in MSA that protects you? How do you split the importance of those two documents with regard to risk? Okay, so I think big picture, insurance is never going to cover everything, right? So you have to look at- But I think we assume it does a lot of times. A lot, of, right. And there's a perception out there. I mean, the reason we buy insurance is so that when something bad happens, somebody messes up, there's a problem, something catastrophic happens, that that full cost isn't borne by the the policyholder, right? And so everyone has car insurance or homeowner's insurance. And so the purpose of homeowner's insurance is if there's a hurricane that comes and wipes your house out, that you don't have to come out of pocket that the insurance company pays for it, right? But there's lots of exclusions. And so big picture, the more complicated the operations, the more nuanced the insurance. And let's be honest, if it's a lot of money at stake, it's cheaper to pay lawyers to fight about it than it is to pay. So just like any dispute, the more money at stake, the more you can spend to fight about it. So I think companies, the purpose of the insurance and the purpose of contracts should be that if something happens, we know ahead of time how that risk of loss is going to be allocated, who's going to take what. And if it's well done, you can't avoid it always, but you're not fighting amongst yourselves after something happens. You're able to say, okay, something has happened. This is what the contract said, and this is how that risk of loss is now allocated. Yeah, And so when you think about stuff like risk mitigation, which is sort of what we're touching here on, it's important, especially in oil and gas, that companies understand what the potential risk can be and then what the working part. So what may happen, what may that look like? Because what, what you really want to do is you want to mitigate that risk out so that people that have a direct 
input into maybe something bad happened, own a piece of that risk mitigation. Is there some type of formula? Is there some type of, you know, when you look at a, a major operation, you could have 30 different subcontractors under five prime contractors under one major contractor on a, you know, $20 million project. Is there some way that you kind of figure that out? Yeah. So most master service agreements have what we call knock for knock indemnities. And the purpose of a knock for knock indemnity is it says, if you've got an operator and a service company, right? That the operator is, it takes responsibility for all of its people and all of its other contractors and all of their subcontractors down the level. And the service contractor says, I'll take all of my people and all of my subs and all of my employees. And in the event that something bad happens, regardless of who was at fault, asterisks, intentional <laughs> gross conduct yeah, aside, right? Willful neg- right, yeah. That if, if somebody makes a mistake, I'll pay and be responsible for my people. You pay and you're responsible for your people. I mean, that's at the end of the day, the intent. And what when an indemnity is written properly, that's what it does. So that you're not fighting over whose fault was it, right? I mean, a well blows out. Somebody made a mistake somewhere trying to figure out who made what mistake when and what percentage of the fault because the mud guy didn't calculate the right way to the mud because the gauger didn't notice because the BOP wasn't operating, you know, right? I mean, there's all these things that happen and contribute to an event. And so you just don't want to be fighting about who was responsible. So that actually brings me, so that's kind of the contractual side. Now let's go on to the insurance side, because when you talk about knock for knock, or if you actually want to take ownership of your subcontractors, so you have, you know, your insurance and then additionally insured that got a lot of talk after Macondo because, and I'm I'm forgetting the details behind. So I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to you. But what changed with additionally? Uh, what is an additional insured? And then how did the law change after Macondo and, and what the courts decided? Okay, so in general, the company who buys the insurance is considered the named insured, and under an insurance policy, a named insured is going to have different rights obligations and benefits under a policy than an additional insured. And in your MSAs and your contracts, you're going to be required to list the other party that you're contracting with as an additional insured under your policy so that in the event of a loss that the other company is entitled to some of those benefits under that insurance policy. So that's what additional insured is. Okay. Most general liability policies, any type of property casualty is kind of the broad umbrella of insurance that is relevant for the time being for what exactly we're talking about, right? That it's going to have an additional insured provision within the contract. And it will either say any of the names of these companies, for example, are considered additional insured. And so if you've got very simple operations, you only do work for three or four different companies, you might just actually list those companies as additional insureds under your policy. Usually what happens is the additional insured endorsement that's attached to the policy will say anyone that you are contractually required to list as an additional insured will be an additional insured under this policy. In the BP case, what ended up happening was, or what the argument was, is how much of the limits. So if there's $100 million of insurance, and the master service agreement only requires that you have $10 million of excess coverage. That is the other party an additional insured for the entire $100 million that you have available? 
or just the 10 million that they were contractually required to have. And so the Texas Supreme Court in that case said generally, and so I have to even back up from that, right? So when we're interpreting an insurance policy, the courts say we look only to the corners of the policy. So absent some type of ambiguity, you're not looking to outside contracts to interpret the terms of the policy. You It's called the four corners rule. And so the Texas Supreme Court said there's an exception to that. And the exception is if the policy itself directs you to look to another written instrument, in this case, the written contract that required okay. the party to be listed as an additional insured, then in that situation, we look to the language of the outside agreement and see what it says. But prior to that, that was not the the standard that it was, like you said, it, it fell to the four corners and it was whatever the insurance was written was what was hard and fast. It, I would say, I don't, I don't think it was that definitive. I would say it was a little bit more wishy-washy. Sometimes the court's would consider outside documents, sometimes they wouldn't, right? So that that basically gave some guidance on if you have an express recognition within your insurance that they should look to another instrument, we honor that and we look to that other instrument. Now, in theory, this sounds like, oh, now we've got this Knight's bright line rule, but in practice, it's never that simple. And so what as an industry, what we've had to do, for example, if your master service agreement said that insurance was required up to $10 million or at least $10 million or shall be $10 million, there's all these different nuanced ways. Yeah, those may, can, shall, must. It, it's a big difference between those words. Right. And so now we've had to rewrite some of our contracts to say, look, we want at least $10 million of coverage but if additional coverage is available, we'll be entitled to that entire tower of insurance in the event of a loss. But the but the primary policyholder doesn't want that necessarily. They don't want to expose their own policy right. to all these additional insured up to whatever their max is. Is that right? It, it depends, right? <laughs> I, 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 that's the you always. I know, that's always <laughs> the answer. Um, I kind of have a little bit of a different school of thought. My thinking is. If the insurance is going to be there and pay for it, you'd rather be able to exhaust that policy. Like, if that will make it go away and you're not going to be fighting anymore, let it come from the insurance. I mean, at that point, if you've got that kind of You're loss, not the spokesman for any national insurance organization no, no, right? with, that, with that sentiment. <laughs> but your premiums are going to go up, right? I mean, you've had a loss, your premiums are going to go up. Right. So at that point, let's just try to make everybody whole is the, is the goal. So I have a little bit of a, I'd say, a different school of thought than what maybe most attorneys would tell you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So now you're making me think even myself, our own business, I wonder if I should go back and reread our MSA. Yes, you should. How, how often should you do that? So it's funny. I suggest that clients have some sort of internal clock that maybe every two years or so says, hey, ding, ding. So however you guys track certificates of insurance, right? So in, in your contracts, if you're required to get a copy of a certificate of insurance, which that's a whole nother thing that I think we should be exchanging policies and not certificates of insurance. So remind me to talk about that. <laughs> but so if, if you say every year you get a, a notice of, we need a new certificate of insurance because a new policy is incepted, that 
at that time, you say, you know, I wonder what our MSA with this particular entity says. And sometimes it requires a tweak. Maybe you need to raise the limits. Maybe you've changed your operations. Maybe at the time that you hired company X, you thought that they were only going to be doing one, two, and three. They've now started doing four, five, and six, and you hadn't really thought about the, the specific issues that could arise out of, say, using radioactive tools in a well, right? So as technology changes, as the services that people provide change, you absolutely need to be looking at your agreements and making sure that they are still current and up to date and that there hasn't been a new case or lawsuit that's now changed how your contract will be interpreted. That was a nice little, but you did just uh, give a presentation or write a paper on radioactive tools. I'm, in the, I'm in the process of writing it right now, yes. Yeah, so if anybody's interested in that kind of topic, so we can you know, reach out to Sarah and she can give you some more information on radioactive tools. Yes. And <laughs> it's fascinating. Probably also, also make sure you have the right contract language in place and the right insurance arrangement. Yeah, as well. absolutely. Three for one. <laughs> can you use the radioactive tools? Can I use them? <laughs> uh, I hope to never. No. <laughs> It's a, we're getting to the point where it's time for our Red Wing safety tip of the week. And Sarah, you have a safety tip for us? Yeah, so I think that my safety tip is going to be maybe a little bit different than what somebody else's safety tip might be. But don't sign it unless you know what you're signing, right? And so educate your field guys that if there's any type of field ticket or work order that has terms and conditions, maybe they shouldn't be signing it without asking. Yeah, and we've all seen people just take a contract and just pencil whip it, just sign it. That it's a, a great tip, but also if you're if you're responsible for carrying out that contract that somebody else is drafting for you and getting signed, know your contract. I think not just reading before you sign, but read and know what you're actually executing on is important. So yeah, read the contract. Yeah, you know if you think about it, it actually is a really good safety tip. I mean, think about how unsafe it can be if you're just signing anything somebody puts in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've you talked about you know field tickets and coming back. I've seen having to go back over the last six months, all these field tickets, because we found out that it every one of them violated the MSA because we had in place. So you had to go back and, you know, pick each one of them and go and why did you sign this? What was going on? Are we going to honor this because it violated it? So yeah, know your contract, not just read it, but know it thoroughly. Yep. And this is a good point for me to say, Hey, if you like what we're talking about and you like the show, can you do me a favor? Click subscribe. It, it literally one second, click subscribe will show up in your, podcast player of choice automatically, uh, Patrick and I, and whatever fascinating subject we're talking about. So just go click subscribe and make us happy. So Sarah, this has actually been really, really good stuff. If people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, what would be a good place for them to go? Right. So Sarah Stogner, S-T-O-G-N-E-R. They can Google me. I think there's <laughs> there's there's me and then there's a, a, a former Duke cheerleader. So I'm not the former Duke cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on LinkedIn. They can find my- Very active on LinkedIn. Very active on LinkedIn, yep. yes. So, yep, I'm around. Yeah. You know, so the funny thing is, we're I was talking about my attorney, and she's fantastic. She's really great. But she's not on LinkedIn at all. Is that her? Or now, So I think that the legal industry has been really slow to embrace it. And I know that some of the older guys that I work with roll their eyes that I am so active and kind of share some- maybe more personal aspects of my life and not just professional. But that's how I found you was that's how one, you of, found one me. of your articles on LinkedIn. Right? right. And so I've got, I've had a couple new clients on stuff from LinkedIn and finding me. So, you know, back to bringing, we want to have, we want to do business with people that we know and we have a relationship with. And I think social media is a way for people to at least feel like they know a little bit of who you are before they hire you. And I think it's the future of our industry is people are going to hire lawyers that have niche 
expertise regardless of where they are because if you've got a computer and an internet, you can anywhere. practice law, right? Yeah, Patrick, you may not know this. I bet Sarah doesn't know this either. There's actually an oil and gas prospect, and a prospect in upstream is pro- mineral bearing property legal podcast. I can't remember the guy that I met. I can't remember the guy that does it, but he, his, um, he talks about the landman's legal world that they, they work in and his peers got really upset with him going, you're giving away all this information for free. You're crazy. You go kill your business. His business quadrupled <laughs> from the podcast just because he was helping people understand that. So yeah, Sarah, I think you're, I think you're spot on Patrick. What else do we want to kind of cover? Because I think we're gonna have Sarah back on again. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got some conferences coming up, and I don't have them in front. You know, Nape is uh, is coming up here in February, first week of February. The whole podcast gang will be there. We'll all be there as press. We may bring some of our new podcasts, which we haven't announced yet because they don't have speaking of contracts, we don't have ink on the contract yet. But yeah, if if you're in that world, come give us a shout out on Twitter. We're gonna be all over Nape. We're gonna be recording podcasts, be shooting videos, probably hit a cocktail reception or two. Might do that yeah, safely. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is also the point. Sarah, did you see that bag over there? Yes. That's the Red Wing Offshore bag. It is in cult demand. People offer us cash for that bag. Hey, I you know, I have PPE sitting in my car that maybe needs a new home. Okay. Well, then all you have to do is go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter. We give one bag away a week and good luck. And audience, you can enter there as well, too. So like I said, great bag. Uh, Patrick's has actually been offshore. Several times. Mine's yeah. got some real world grease and, and dirt on it. <laughs> My offshore bag has not been offshore yet. Yet. All right. So Sarah, this has been great. We'll put links in the show notes so people can just click to find your LinkedIn profile. Come check out what you're doing. We really, really appreciate you being on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Patrick, ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks. Don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. So, Sarah, what's the craziest thing you've seen in the field? So, seen or heard of? You know, seen or heard? Uh, Either way. It's, it's hearsay. That's fine. Okay, so. Not admissible. <laughs> right. <laughs> we had a guy that was offshore on a platform and ha- was mixing mud. And I guess that there was the grating, the floor grating. And he uh, dropped his skull can down and tried to fish it out with a stick or something and couldn't. And so he decided he was going to take the grating off and move it to the side and try to actually then get down into the mud with his arm and and pull it out. And he fell in and he drowned in the mud mixing, trying to get his dip can out of... uh, I was going to make a Willy Wonka joke, but that's ter- that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, but that's a perfect example how when you just assume nothing can happen and you're not paying attention, you're not doing the right thing, really bad things can happen. Cuz it, it the the mixing it knocked him out. I mean, I don't think he would have he would have been able to get out of it had he not been knocked unconscious, but Yeah, so audience, if you dip snuff offshore, 
leave the can where it fell. I'm going to just flat out say, just don't remove a safety barrier. Shut the machine off. Yeah. Do what's right. Just don't remove that safety barrier that he decided to remove and get in there. So that's that'd be my takeaway from it. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. 